Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. This final week of Advent, we cannot help but rejoice with God's people at the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. We join with the crop of misfits who eagerly welcomed the Christ child, a teenage mother, her confused husband, who was nonetheless determined to raise this child as his own. Shepherds, animals, astrologers, all were united in their rejoicing. Even Jesus's cousin John rejoiced in Elizabeth's womb when he heard the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Listen as we read from Luke chapter one, verses 39 to 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We light these candles with the assurance that our King has come and will assuredly come again. O God of Elizabeth and Mary, you visited your servants with news of the world's redemption and the coming of the Savior. Make our hearts leap with joy and fill our mouths with songs of praise that we may announce glad tidings of peace and welcome Jesus, the King, in our midst. Holy Father, you have given us a sign of your love through the gift of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, who was promised from ages past. We believe, as Joseph did, the message of your presence, whispered by an angel, and offer our prayers for your world, confident of your care and mercies for all creation. Shepherd of Israel, you gently support the one who is with child, and call forth the lamb who dances in the womb. Stir our hearts to recognize Christ's coming, as Elizabeth recognized his presence in Mary's radiant obedience to your desire and open our souls to receive the one who came to love your flock. Amen. All right, good morning. Uh, Kiddos, we have uh, Elevate this morning, which is first and second grade, and I believe we also have Kids Refuge, which is which is not Kids Refuge. We also have EGC, Elementary Gospel Community, third, fourth, and fifth grade, out this way. And uh, so my daughter brought a friend home from college for Thanksgiving who had never had eggnog, and she tasted it. And she said, yeah, it tastes like melted ice cream. So I guess if you want to confess that you don't like ice cream, it's totally fine. I also thought that was the most brilliant. I was like, yeah, it does. Okay. So, all right. Yeah, no reaction. Do you agree? Doesn't it taste like melted ice cream? No? All right. Well, forget all you people. Um, we're going to read now, uh, we're continuing on in our Advent series, and I'm flipping, not even paying attention to where I'm going here. Uh, we're going to read from John chapter 16, uh, verses 16 through 24, and if you want to 
hang out there and put your uh, finger there, uh, we, will, we will be reading, uh, we'll be coming back to that pass- this passage. And it starts off, it's a little confusing, uh, but I think you'll hopefully get the point here. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. This is near the end of his life and ministry. Shortly after this, he will be arrested and go on trial. Um, yeah. This is what Jesus says. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is, he, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. In verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. Uh, so he said to them, which by the way, this is not necessarily Jesus being like, this is not him having supernatural power, being able to discerning thoughts. I, I have a feeling this was pretty obvious. Um, uh, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again in a little while and you will see me? Truly I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Probably pain is a better uh, translation there. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, or anguish is probably appropriate as well, uh, for for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, and truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, There is a small town, actually it is the smallest city in Belgium, and there is a small, there's a memorial statue there of a soccer ball just kind of on top of a a post, uh, aka a football uh, in in Europe. And it stands with the inscription underneath it at the bottom reading, uh, a lull in the hate. Uh, It was declared in World War I in 2014, the first time that the Western world had been at war, that Christmas would be a day of, would be an armistice day. The very first time that the arms would be set aside and there would be no fighting on Christmas day. And in fact, uh, supposedly, it was even encouraged uh, for the troops to even begin to frat- fraternize uh, together uh, with the other troops. And they talked about uh, having a soccer game, a friendly competition uh, on what was the previous day, the field of battle. Um, and so this is a powerful image, and there's been a couple memorials Uh, to this, soldiers laying down their weapons and picking up a soccer ball on Christmas morning to get out of their trenches uh, and and to play a game with the enemy. A, A light in a very, very, very dark time. Well, as it turns out, and there's some various, there's some various stories about how all, how all this went and that they were forbidden from talking about it and that the press couldn't do it and they couldn't write home about it. And actually, none of those stories are true. There are letters from both German and British uh, soldiers that talk about uh, how they heard about these soccer games that were played. And for most of them, it was more third-hand we heard that this company down the line or this company up the line, uh, that they gathered on the field and they played a soccer game. And the hope that was filled with each one of these soldiers and their letters, uh, even just the image of that soccer game or the, or the thought or the rumor of that game was enough to provide just even uh, a little bit of a glimpse of hope in the midst of 
such darkness. And so it is very possible that there was a soccer game played. It probably wasn't to the degree that we might think that all of the soldiers got out of their trenches. But it's likely, uh, and, and we hear and see these rumors of things that might have happened, uh, that a few soldiers, uh, British and German, got out of their trench in the middle of one of the darkest wars in history uh, and played a game with one another. Um, we are now in the season of Advent, and what we've talked about for Advent, Advent is not Christmas, although we did sneak a couple uh, Christmas songs in this morning. Um, Advent is the time of longing and waiting. It is the time where we acknowledge the darkness. Uh, and um, I tried to explain this a little bit last week. There is a liturgical order to Advent. We are a week off because we always do the share service on Thanksgiving. And the third week of Advent, which we are going, which we are going to hit today, is traditionally the day that we look back uh, at rejoicing with uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so you may have... You may have recognized last week that Joel, when he read, he uh, lit three candles. He lit two purple candles and the pink candle. And you may have in your heart, you can go ahead and come on up, Naomi. Uh, you may have in your heart gone, no, 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 it's three purple candles and then the pink candle. And I want to assure you, uh, Joel was right, two purple candles and then the pink candle. The pink candle is to commemorate, just hang here, I'll get you. Uh, the pink candle is to commemorate rejoicing in the time of waiting. And we join with Mary that even in the time of waiting is not without rejoicing. And it's not that circumstances cease, but that joy and rejoicing can be found even in the midst of waiting. And so it is a time of darkness, uh, but I want you to listen to the song that Mary sings in response to God's shocking message to her. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. At this point in time, there is nothing... There is absolutely nothing remarkable about Mary from external circumstances. And yet, her heart, her humble heart, her response to God is beautiful, is revealed in this song. In the middle of a pretty dark and confusing situation, she has promised to be married, uh, and yet, so she is still a virgin, pregnant with the child of God, which I would imagine that... Uh, that probably didn't fly well in her community. Um, and the persecution, the ostracism that she would have faced would have been uh, incredible. And she has essentially kind of run away to be with her aunt, Elizabeth, who confirms to her that she has also received this message from God and that the child that Mary is carrying is actually God's blessing. And Mary responds... As a teenager, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices. Rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And despite what the community may think of her now, there will come a time when all generations will call her blessed. For the mercy of God is for those who fear him. And then Mary gives a vision of how God's economy will work in this world. She gives a vision of a world, either, you can either look at it as a world turned upside down or maybe a world made right. Who God esteems versus 
who the world seems to esteem. God will scatter the proud. He will bring down the powerful. He will send away the rich empty-handed. Now, listen, this is not necessarily a condemnation against uh, power or wealth. It is a condemnation, really, the grace of God is for those who need him. And it is not for those who do not think they need him. Those who are wealthy in their own eyes, those who have power in their own eyes. His grace is for those who need him. The humble, the hungry, that he will feed. And this is a beautiful picture of Mary. This is, the, this is who God exalts. A minority teenager, poor, from the outskirts of town. This is who God exalts. And she finds her joy here in the goodness of God and his character that those who appear to be forgotten are not forgotten by God. And before we get back to Jesus as he teaches his disciples that we looked at in, Genesis, uh, in John chapter 16, uh, I want to say here that Mary is not simply an example for women. Mary here is an example for anyone who would find hope in Jesus. Um, she is a profound example for anyone who would come before God with the hope of finding mercy and grace. Mary and Elizabeth are heroic in their faith, and I know as Protestants we tend to kind of overreact and play this down, uh, but this is, this is remarkable, especially considering the extremely rare circumstances that they find themselves in. Mary would have faced incredible social pressure, potentially even physical harm. And she would proclaim her faith. She would take on the world and her trust before God. And we should honor that. She is a hero in the faith. Um, and what is also noted, and, and as we look at this, and we'll get back to this at the very end, as we look at um, can we trust Scripture? Is Scripture real? Do these events really take, take place here? One of the most respected historians of all time is Luke and what Luke does here is he platforms a minority pregnant unwed teenager who proclaims the coming of the Messiah. And her humility and her faith will be trumpeted to all generations. Mary in her song to God paints a beautiful portrait of a world that is broken but will one day be made right. She paints a beautiful picture of finding joy despite what she is presently enduring. And then she gives us this image of God's kingdom. And this is something we are called to find hope in. And this is also something we're called to participate in as followers of Jesus. If you remember last week in 1 Thessalonians, uh, in chapter 5, uh, Paul ad ad encouraging and admonishing the church in Thessalonica to... Uh, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Don't repay evil for evil. Seek to do good to one another and everyone. Rejoice always. And this is a community that is experiencing harsh persecution. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we participate in this kingdom, both personally and corporately, uh, in holiness and righteousness, that this is the kingdom of God that is coming, this is the kingdom of God that is here, this is the kingdom of God that we are being prepared to walk in. And so if you remember last week we talked about uh, our preparation becomes inclined toward, the, toward what we believe is our ultimate hope. Loving God, loving our neighbor as ourselves, with passion and vigor and zeal. And so this vision that Mary sees in the proclamation of the coming Messiah is what the kingdom of God will look like and it is what kingdom people are to be about. Humble, dependent, and rejoicing always. So, with that in mind, let's get back to Jesus teaching his disciples near the end of his life, the final uh, words in his ministry. 
in John chapter 16. He starts off and he says this, A little while and you will be with me and you will see me no longer. And a little while, again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while you will see me because I am going to the Father. Uh, I always love, it, it's always comforting to me uh, when uh, the, the disciples are portrayed in Scripture. Sometimes I think we may think disciples and we go, yeah, these are these guys that had it all together uh, and they are the intense followers of Jesus and we're called to emulate them. And here's the good news. We are called to, to be like the disciples and they weren't these pillars of faith. Uh, we're shown over and over again. These are young, mostly uneducated, uneducated guys thrown in like, uh, I mean, like, like a mixed bag of nuts. Like they are this, they, they would not get along in any other circumstances. And here they are thrown together, and, and it's, Scripture makes a point of letting us know these guys don't have it all together. Um, and so uh, they don't necessarily understand what Jesus is talking about here, which in this part is, is, not, is to be understood because um, I'm not fully sure all that Jesus is talking about here. I think there's, he is hinting at his death and resurrection, but I also think what he's talking about is it, it seems to be bigger and more cosmic. The context for this passage, again, this is when, he is when Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's shortly before his rest. And he's been talking with his disciples. He's warning them about the persecution that they're going to face. He's warning them about temptations to turn away from him. Uh, he's talking to them about the reality of, the, of suffering in this world, that they are going to suffer, but that there is hope. And then he talks about leaving and going to be with the Father, but he will send a helper. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Um, and quickly, to give you, an, when people say, well, what is the function of the, of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit on earth is to point our hearts and minds to Jesus. It, it, he, he, uh, he makes us aware of sin, convicts us of sin, and points to Jesus. And so if you hear things that sound crazy, uh, uh, with the Holy Spirit, and you go, well, I don't know if that's really the Holy Spirit or not. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point our hearts to Jesus. He can do that through crazy means, for sure, but he's not just like this, um, I'm going to get in trouble here if I go too far with this. Uh, that is his purpose. He can do that through extraordinary means and through ordinary means, but his goal is to point our hearts to Jesus. And then Jesus brings up his absence, this time of absence. Verse 18, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Um... Followers of Jesus have a different view of the world around us. It, others might be tempted to live it up, uh, to get the most out of life, uh, pursuing the good life, but for followers of Jesus, the world looks different. It is not all about what we can get right now. Uh, it is not about sucking the marrow out of life or carpe diem or YOLO. It just, it just isn't. That's not the eyes that we are given to see with. In fact, for the follower of Jesus, there becomes an internal groaning. We can see the beauty of the world, the way God designed it. And in some ways, it makes it even harder. Uh, all around us, there's this cosmic beauty on display, and yet we see suffering, the reality of darkness. Paul in Romans 8 actually tells us that uh, we, we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons uh, to be given uh, the re a renewal of our bodies. And Paul says that that inward groaning is actually the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit actually gives us eyes to see. And the reason I'm telling you this is because sometimes we think if I become a follower of Jesus, that means that things are, things are good and, and I only see the good. It's, we... we can mix up optimism with that. 
And the reality is, part of the first fruits of the Spirit is actually to see that the world is not as it should be. People have often posed the thought of, I can't believe in a God with so much, when there's so much suffering in the world. And in appropriate context, not when it's a personal thing, but in appropriate context, uh, a response that, that I've talked about with various people on that is, okay, so let's just say God doesn't exist. Now, is there still suffering in the world? Is there still injustice? Is there still hurt and pain? What we do in that is we take away the hope. As followers of Jesus, we're not purely optimists where we deny, you know, where we're like too blessed to be stressed. We don't deny the reality of suffering and pain in the world. And we're not simply pessimists. And I, I, even this morning, I woke up with, I'll just tell you, I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning. Nobody woke, wakes up at like early in the morning with, with um, realistic thoughts, right? <laughs> where you have just a good sober view of the world. Uh, and so I woke up this morning with this pounding like, how in the world are you going to get up there and talk about joy? And then also, this sermon has a lot about suffering in it, and people are going to look at you like, come on, man, it's Christmas time. Why are you talking about suffering? Um, some of you may be thinking that. Uh, as followers of Jesus, it's actually a gift of the Spirit that we're able to look at the world and say, this is not as it should be. And in fact, that gives us a deeper sorrow and a deeper sense of angst, um, because we know and believe and trust that the world was designed good. Followers of Jesus are to be, ultimately, we're to be hopeful realists. Paul tells us that the sufferings we face in this world will not even compare to the glory that is to come. And so we don't endure in hopelessness, but we do endure. There's actually an evidence of God at work in you when you can look around and see the world and see beauty, but also see brokenness. And it's not a grieving, uh, it is a grieving, but it's not one that looks at the world in condemnation. It's not a one that looks at the world and says, those people, if those people would just get their act together, if people would just be like me, then. But we see the reality of the world, injustice, hurt, pain, poverty, on and on and on. I, I'm sure many of you sit in this same, this same chair. I, I continue to weep as I see images from Kentucky, uh, as I continue to see the factory in Edwardsville um, as a result of, of, uh, of tornadoes. And even there, well, uh, a few years ago, 10 years ago, actually, um, when the tornado hit Joplin, uh, I have a pastor friend in Joplin, and I went down and we walked through. Uh, we stood in the middle of a house that was gone, uh, a family from his church, and the only thing left was the very center was a bathroom and a bathtub, and all the other walls had been blown out, and their whole family had been covered in that bathtub. And those images stick in my mind. A few weeks ago, the world mourned five million people globally have died from this pandemic. Five million. Even this weekend, uh, an organization that I had a lot of respect for, that I thought was doing very, very good work, I'd heard reports about this a while ago, uh, come to find out not only a very toxic environment, but that also embellished a lot of the work that they had been doing and, and lying to donors. And then we take all of this and there are personal struggles and there's internal turmoil and addictions and abuse and depression and and we're told that the reality, we're, we are told by Jesus that there is a reality of suffering in this world. And this can get somewhat complicated uh, or, or complicating because we live in a time and a culture uh, that we don't know what to do with suffering. We really don't. 
Nothing that's marketed to us tells us how to endure suffering. It tells us who's to blame. It tells us who we should be mad at. Uh, sometimes we want answers, and there's not always answers. Sometimes there are answers. Um, I was driving down, uh, I don't remember, a road, and I was looking at my phone. Cast, don't, don't be casting the first stones here. I was looking at my phone, and, and I, I hit the curb on the side. About 40 miles an hour, I hit the curb on the side of the, and, you know, snap back in to it. Um, I can't look at that and say, you know, Bill Gates. <sighs> because I, I have an apple. Um, anyway, I can't, like, that's my fault. But sometimes suffering happens. We want answers, and, and there's not always answers. Um, we want someone to blame. We want someone to unleash our outrage upon that if they didn't do this, then none of this would have happened. And there's a, you know, the, there was a TikTok thing this weekend, and now there's posts all over saying, well, if you just, you just took your kids off TikTok, then we wouldn't have to. And it, it's like we want, and yeah, I mean, sure. But there's a reality of suffering in our world. Sometimes the answer, we, we don't have good answers. We want healing, and healing is good, but sometimes we think that healing means we don't ever have to feel pain again, and then we're, we're good to go, right? Uh, I, I broke my arm three times in three different places in high school. I think, I think it was a record. Um, uh, two times were really bad, and one time was just dumb. We were doing somersaults in football, it was an exercise, and I can't remember what it was called. Trust me, it was legit. Um, and, a, and a guy somersaulted onto my wrist. I had my wrist down, and he somersaulted over on it and, and just landed on my wrist. And, it, and I practiced for like three or four more days, and then I finally went to the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, it's broken. There's just a little crack in there. Uh, and here we are some years later, and the other two places where I've broken bones have actually grown back stronger, no problems at all but my wrist on cold days. It's healed, but I'm reminded often, it still hurts. Um, there will always be a remnant of the shadows and of the darkness of this world, and we might find ways to deal with that, distraction or double down or su on success or, or whatever, um, we might try to get rid of all the negative, negative people in our lives or, or however we seek to cope with suffering, but there's always still going to be darkness. G.K. Testerton once said, uh, we need fairy tales because fairy tales don't tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. We need fairy tales to tell children that, that the dragon can be defeated. It would be wise for us to take a look, I think, perhaps at some of our coping mechanisms. Because we are not in a culture equipped to deal with suffering, we often, are, we often have coping mechanisms um, to deal with it, uh, to watch our anger or our outrage or our bitterness or even our indifference, which can lead to depression when we're told not to care about things over and over again. We should also recognize the very real elements of Compassion fatigue, how many things we can actually care about and give our attention to. It used to be in time before that we were limited in our knowledge of what was happening in the world. If the Smith family barn caught on fire, uh, first, it didn't happen very often. Second, you knew the Smith family. They were in your community or your extended community, and there was something you could do. You could tangibly go and help them. And now, not only do we know that the Smith family barn has caught on fire, but we also know that there is starvation in southeast India, and we also know about random events in the Middle East, and we're confronted with all of these things separated by a, huge, by a few cat videos here and there, and we are just inundated with every possible thing that is going wrong in the world. And still to my day, one of my favorite Twitter posts ever is people who are suffering from disease or natural disaster Hang in there, 
we're liking posts as fast as we can. Our capacity to actually do anything about it is so limited. And that can just be overwhelming and it can be crushing. But Jesus paints a picture beyond the pain and the sorrow of what is available to us. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Again, probably anguish is, this is we, yeah, uh, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So, you, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that, day you will ask nothing, uh, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus promises joy because of his presence, which is huge, but um, that we're not alone. But there's even more than that here. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you had to go through a mediator, a priest, to go before God, and you had to bring the appropriate sacrifices that your request or your, uh, your, uh, your prayer would be heard. Jesus, as our sacrifice, as our mediating priest, now opens the door that we can come before the Father and ask anything in his name. And so the presence of Jesus not only reveals that we're not alone, he tells us you will see me again and it will bring you joy, but it also ushers us into fellowship with God the Father. He invites us to have fellowship, to be known and know the king of the universe, the triune God, to join in this communal God. And what does it mean that we can ask anything in his name? Does this mean we can ask for any kind of like selfish or hedonistic thing we want? I mean, technically, I guess you can try. Um, but what the promise is, is that what God will give us is to the end that our joy will be made complete. That he will give us what fulfills our joy. He will give us what we need. What is good for us. Going back to 1 John John writes that we, will have fel- we have fellowship with God and with one another. And we tell you this to make our joy complete. We have at our fingertips joy and hope that is not rooted in our circumstances, but is rooted in the, pres- uh, in the presence of God and one another. Um, my friend in Memphis talked about this, and I thought this was really helpful. The three phases, the elements of hope that we have in Christ through the work of God. Uh, With the past, hope and trust in Christ means that you have been forgiven and have been reconciled to God, that you have been purchased uh, from the slavery of sin and have been transferred into the kingdom of light. In the present, the hope that we have, the the rejoicing that we have, or where joy can be found, is that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, conforming us to the image of God, to our full humanity who we are designed to be, which means that the pain and suffering we might endure in this present age uh, is not wasted. That even this can be redeemed. That God works even here for our good to continue forming and shaping us. And I I meant to, this, uh, if you've you've gone through a... um, My brain is is gone. Uh, if you've, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip that. So in the past, in the present, in the future, there is a certainty that we talked about earlier of a coming kingdom, the joy that we find in the future, where, where we will be with Jesus. God will be with us as our God. There will be no need for the Son, for He will be our light. And what we hear from this is that the worst thing will not be the last thing. There is hope. We are hope-filled realists. We can see and feel and know the sorrow now, the darkness that can seem to permeate our world. We don't have to deny reality. We don't have to just be happy or ignore real pain, even pain that we might have caused, and yet we do not grieve as those without hope. 
Um, now, how then do we fight for joy? What does it mean that we can rejoice in these circumstances or in every circumstance? Uh, rejoicing is not just a silver lining. Uh, it's not just going around and trying to find the bright side of everything. That's actually kind of a form of denial. Joy sees the darkness while knowing that we have not been left in the dark, that the light of the world has come. Um, and so joy is not, even to give a definition of joy is kind of hard. It's not simply happiness. Um, I think it's more of a settledness. No matter how dark that this is not the end. And so a couple things about how to fight for joy. First, um, you may have been raised, I know several people are, have been raised with this idea that um, either explicitly or implicitly, if you do the right things and you don't do the wrong things, then your life will be great or good or you wouldn't have suffering. Any, anybody like either just like there's a holiday coming up that might, if not careful, reinforce that view. I won't spoil it for anybody. Um, but, and it's not that we're not called to be obedient to God. We are called to be obedient, but it's not a coercion. We're called to be obedient because this is the way God designed the world to be, and this is what is good for us. I've said this often. The way that sin works is not, uh, sin is not like God being the cosmic killjoy. Sin is like, if, it's like not liking eggnog, right? Like this is a good and, uh, and refreshing holiday treat. All right. Sin is like if God said, commanded us, you need to eat ice cream for every meal, the way sin works is that we would go, ah, every meal? Why do I have to eat ice cream so much? Can't I just have broccoli? Sin is our, our angst against the way God designed the world. So our obedience is actually because we're designed that way. Um, but this idea that, that if you do all the right things, then, then God will... Uh, your life will be good. And for many of us, we need to lay down, if, if we've been taught or we believe a sense of entitlement, that God owes us a good life because look what I've done or look what I haven't done. And let me just encourage you by saying, suffering doesn't come necessarily because of what you have or have not done. Suffering is a reality in this world. It exists. We're not called to deny it or, or turn it away. And so we need to lay that down. God does not owe us a good life our trust in Jesus is about a world to come and that God is enough, that life in Christ is enough. And so the first thing is in fighting for joy is to maybe lay down the, uh, if we have a sense of entitlement. Second thing is joy is not contingent on things going well. What we see in Scripture oftentimes is that the light shines brightest in the middle of darkness. It's in the middle of darkness that God's presence seems to be most evident. Clinging to the realities that we have experienced forgiveness and reconciliation with God. The present work of the Holy Spirit that nothing we endure or face will be left unredeemed. And then our future hope in the resurrection. and to be grateful in all circumstances, which oftentimes, if you notice this, if you do calculations on your life, you'll notice that most time when God is most present is in a time of sorrow. In a time of abundance is when our temptation th is, kicks in to think we can make it without him. And then finally, joy is not a reaction to events or expected events. Joy is something we practice. It's something we have to fight for. It's something we have to be deliberate about doing. It's like gratitude, but what Jesus tells us is it's available to us at all times. Now, I want to make this clear. We don't find joy in bad things, okay? Uh, we don't rejoice over pain and over injustice or evil or wickedness. Those are bad. They are part of the, d the darkness, and they need to be identified as such and treated as such. But even there, we can be thankful that God is still at work, that this is not the end. That God can and use and, and even redeem evil. 
to shape and grow his people, and that one day he will put an end to all the darkness. Joy is our declaration to the world that our hope is not built, that our hope is built on something greater than this world. Just like Mary, joy is found not in present circumstances, but that there is a greater reality. That I am not the end all be all of existence, but I belong to Christ. I have fellowship with God through him, and then we have fellowship with one another. Advent is for those who suffer and mourn presently. And joy and rejoicing exist even in the darkness because a light has come into the world. And I want to I finish with this. Um, We have a tendency in our world, Christianity is, is very well known, it's very well rehearsed. This story of the incarnation, the story of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave, and, and it can roll off the tongue. And even the story of the virgin birth, let me say that again, the story of the virgin birth, and it just rolls off our tongue, right? Yeah. You know what, you, you need to believe in the virgin birth, like, like that's normal. Um... It's crazy. It's crazy. This is not just like any other birth story where we look and go, oh, it's so cute. It's crazy. And there's, of all, of all of the crazy claims of Christianity, surely the virgin birth is up there. Um, and then Mary her response flies in the face of, of, of all that we think is normal when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, for he, is mighty. he who is mighty has done great things for me. Um, in our day, we have an elevated view of science. Science is good, okay? The problem is when we make science ultimate, all right? But we have an elevated view of science in our day where it's almost a divine view, Right? I have faith in, I, I believe in science. I'm not, listen. All right. I'm vaxxed twice. I've got, the, I've got the booster. I believe in it, and I think it's, I, I, I'm for it. Okay? But we've elevated a view of science to be almost divine. And if we can't explain something in our world, everything should be explainable. And surely, okay, you're telling me there's a virgin birth, but do we have documentation on that? Do we have DNA on that? Um, and so we, we find reasons um, to, to marginalize that. Uh, in the ancient world, a virgin birth was also, they, they knew, <laughs> they knew, all right? Um, they knew that virgins didn't, didn't get pregnant. Uh, in a Jewish day, the idea of a God becoming man in, in ancient Jewish culture, uh, the idea that the God whose name we can't even whisper becoming human was offensive. That was dirty. Now, in other pagan cultures, God-men were, that was to be understood because the emperors and the kings had divine influence. But the idea of a God impoverished, born out of wedlock with such terrible beginnings and endings, that was ridiculous. Everything about this story is crazy. And here's what I want to tell you. I'm not going to sit here and tell you you should believe this. I want to tell you I believe this. Not because I haven't done research, not because I haven't read books, not because I haven't seen the conspiracy theories that are out there. I've read them. I wrestle often. I believe this. I believe it took place in time and history. There's so much here that doesn't make sense if it didn't happen. Luke, the historian, platforming a pregnant, unwed minority teenager to declare the coming of the king. That's not something you put in the text if you want to sell books. And it's certainly something that you edit out if you're going to remake the text 300 years later. The birth of Jesus, we, we read this earlier, the birth of Jesus was attended to by, by shepherds, social outcasts, 
Guys that were out in the field during temple practices and they were looked down on for that. A group of pagan, we call them wise men, but a, a group of pagan star worshipers who eventually found their way to the, this and to, to find Jesus. And it probably wasn't a... Okay. okay. Um, but they find their way there and they bring gifts proclaiming both kingship and death. If you're making this up, you, this is not stuff you put in here. I want to tell you that I am absolutely convinced that this story took place in time and history. And if it did take place in time and history, the consequences are astounding. If this really happened, the consequences are astounding. Far more than we probably put thought to. Christ has come. All throughout the history of Israel, they were told that God would come and rescue his people, that he would deliver his people. And Paul, who was a devout Jew and believed that God would come uh, one day to rescue his people, was convinced by Jesus himself, this is the fulfillment of the story. Doesn't look like we thought it was going to look. But this is the climax and if that's true, then everything looks different. This is a new reality. God's presence is with us, Emmanuel. God's rescue plan had come to fruition. The God of the universe has entered time and space. He has not left us in darkness. A light has come, and in a little while, he will come again. And we're invited to rejoice in that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, probably first and foremost, even listening to my own words and your words, uh, this easily becomes old hat. This easily rolls off the tongue. I do not, and was hit even this morning with that reality that I do not find my joy in just how miraculous this event was and the consequences of that. And so I ask and plead for forgiveness and even there, find my hope that Advent is not about my faithfulness, but is about your faithfulness. So this week, as we, as I walk along the way, as we gather with family or friends or whatever the Christmas rituals that we go through give us eyes to see just how miraculous this is. To find joy even in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.